This morning, I want to uh, try to draw our attention to something that I think is very simple, a very basic concept that's portrayed for us here in the Scripture itself, but something that I think sometimes we don't think through well enough, and I want to ask the simple question of what is salvation? What is salvation? And before I do that, actually, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I pray as we come here this morning that you would meet us, that you would speak your life to us. We need to be conformed no longer to the image of the world around us or our own image or anything else but you. And so, God, we pray that you would have that prophetic word, Lord. And I know that I'm just a mere man. I'm humanity, but, Lord, you are deity. And we pray, God, that your nature would speak to these people. You would reveal your glory. Take your glory, Lord. Help me to honor you in this place. We pray for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. And so the question that we have here is, what is salvation? And, and at first glance, glances, it seems like, well, that's a pretty simple enough question, isn't it? What is salvation? But the problem that I think we face, all of us face, is that we become uh, tied into the cultural definitions and the, as opposed to the biblical definitions of terminology. So that even like the Mormons, for instance, they're, we're, we're, they're not Christians. We're friends with them, but they're not Christians. It's a different Jesus. They have all the same terminology as us, but they have a different definition. They talk like I talk, but they don't believe like I believe. And so this becomes not only a problem with the cults, it also becomes a problem with us within Christendom, where we begin to have all sorts of influences that are telling us what these words mean. So that all of us come from a Western culture, we shouldn't be ashamed of it, it's just a fact of the way it is. And the danger that we lie in is we try to press into the scripture our understanding. So even though it's a simple question, what is salvation, and it can be answered very simply, the problem is we have all, because of virtue of our culture, we have all tied a Gordian knot. And this Gordian knot needs to be untangled or at least chopped in half, one of the two, because it's so tied up with concepts and ideas, we need to go back to the scripture and say, actually, what is salvation? What is it? Is it only a heavenly contract that I signed up with God that when I can, I can live the way I want on the earth and then when I die I have a promise of going to heaven? That's the way that we think, isn't it? And so Western culture ultimately teaches, as you can see the subtitle under here, it teaches a contract idea between us and God. That is, we signed up the contract. I said, you know, I died for your sins. I'm going to give you a billion dollars, let's say. Will you allow me to give you a billion dollars? Yes, I'll allow you to give me a billion dollars and, and this type of an idea. Or is it rather a covenant? What's the difference between a contract and a covenant? A contract is where two people engage in an agreement out of selfish reasons. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It just, it's selfish. You go to the car dealer, and you're not looking to have a relationship with the guy. You're going into a contract with him where you give me what I want, a car, I'll give you what you want, money, but I don't want you coming home with me. I don't want to spend the, all my Christmas vacation with you. I just want, uh, there's something that we're engaging in, contract, selfishly, doesn't mean it's wrong. It just simply means that you give something to me, I give something to you, but I really want it to end there, right? How many of you guys had your car dealer come home with Thanksgiving, unless, of course, you're married to a car dealer? God bless you. <laughs> but... <laughs> You see, you don't do this. But rather, what does the Scripture speak about? Does it even once talk about a contract? You see, we've pressed into the Scripture our ideas. But rather, the Scripture speaks about a covenant. And we really don't have covenants in our culture, except for one, actually. You know what covenant we have? It's a marriage covenant. 
We don't have marriage contracts. If you do, you need counseling. You need biblical counseling. You need to be set free from that. Because you don't come into a relationship and say, listen, you provide me certain conjugal rights. I'll provide you a nice home. We'll have children together. We'll raise them. But we're going to live selfishly. It's not going to work. But it's rather a covenant where the two people walk together, as Amos tells us in 3.3. How can two walk together unless they agree? So we come into a covenant in marriage, and this is the closest thing. In fact, in Scripture, it defines this covenant of marriage as being a type of what man is to be to God, and thus now we understand why the devil attacks marriage. And so in this whole issue, is it a contract? No, it's not a selfish thing. It's something different. It's where I'm walking with him, and what the Scripture reveals to us is that God is about procuring a bride for himself. We've got it so narcissistically, humanistically centered anymore as the purpose of the gospel. What the scripture reveals is that it's about him. The Bible tells us in Revelation 4 that we were created for his good pleasure. And if that's the reason I was created, I'll only be happy if I operate in accord with the function for which I was created. But if I violate that purpose, seek my life, I'll lose it, Jesus said. But if I lose my life, I'll find it. So I have to not seek me, but I seek him, and as I seek him, I find life. The Christian man's an enigma. So God is about procuring a bride for a people. That's why he tells us in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, look what it says here. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. What does the scripture speak about? That God is about procuring a bride to himself. The emphasis is about his pleasure. We are here to be a people that are pleasing unto him. So that if we reverse that order, actually we can retain the same terminology. But if we reverse the order, the, the, the spirit behind it is not the spirit of Jesus Christ. It's the spirit of Antichrist. Where you'll begin to say, I am God, which means it's all about me. We'll still believe the lie of the devil in Genesis 3 where he said, you are God. And we'll say, yeah, that's right. It's all about me and my best life now. But faith says my best life then. Interesting. And so we can take the same verses, but the direction of those verses is pointing to man. So the whole issue is about procuring a bride for him, to be a pure, spotless, virgin bride for him so that we can please him. I was looking the other day, or actually yesterday, yesterday morning, I was looking at the book of Esther, and in Esther chapter 2 and verse 12, you remember Esther? Esther was being prepared to be presented before King Ahasuerus, and as she was being prepared, what happened to her? She was set aside for 12 months of beauty treatments. It says six months with oil, six months with fragrance, 12 months she was being prepared for the king. Now, if her whole goal in life was to be beauty treated, if our goal is just beauty treatments, we'll get off. If our goal is holiness, we'll get off. But if we recognize that the beauty treatments are a means to an end, the end is the king. The end is a Hashuerus. And because my goal is a Hashuerus, I go through the means of preparing myself so I can be presentable to the king. But there's some people that get off on the other extreme and say, no, the goal is just to be clean. The goal is just to be holy. We need to be holy. But if holiness is our goal, it'll become an idolatrous thing. It'll become legalistic. But don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Holiness is the means to the end. 12 months of beauty treatments. 12 months of the oil, always a picture of the Holy Spirit. 
basking in his nature and his person, letting his nature saturate through me, and then taking on the fragrance for the last six months, which is the fragrance of Christ that Paul spoke about in 2 Corinthians. You're the fragrance of Christ. And the whole purpose is that Hehashuerus, in the case of Esther, would have a prepared bride for him. It was for his pleasure. And this is the same thing that the Gospels revealed to us. And Satan has come in and made us believe a lie, a yarn, that it's about us. It's not true. Even as Abraham sent out Eliezer to procure a bride for his son, so the father has sent out the spirit to procure a bride for his son. And we are being made to please him. And this is why Philippians comes in and tells us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So have we discovered what salvation is yet? No, we're just generally speaking about what the purpose is to procure a bride. But work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out what God has worked in. You've received something, so now act upon it. You've been imputed righteous, so therefore act righteous. We are to act out what we have received. It would be wrong to ask a person that has received nothing to act on anything. It would be wrong to tell a person to give away their life if they haven't received eternal life. It would be wrong for a tell a person to forgive somebody if they haven't been forgiven. It would be wrong to say give if you have never been given anything. So the whole purpose that God is working out is that he is saying, listen, there is something that has to be worked out inside of me that has to come through me. We've received this grace. Now let it act out. Let it procure a bride. And the scripture talks about, as we said, the bride of Christ. It doesn't call us the cool church. It doesn't call us the, we're a mover and shaken place. It doesn't even call us the bride. It calls us the bride of Christ. The emphasis is on him. It's for his pleasure. You seek your life, you're going to lose it. You lose your life for his sake, you'll find it. The bride that anticipates her husband, she becomes all the more beautiful. And here we are to be centered once again in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to be focused upon the nature and the person of Jesus Christ. We're losing the Christocentricity in our church, friends. The church is now becoming about my best life now. I think someone wrote a book about that. It's not true. It's a lie from hell. It is a demonic doctrine. And the fact is, is that this is something we're going to be emphasizing in the school. We always emphasize it. But as a particular class, we're going to be talking about the centrality of Jesus Christ. And when we lose the sense of the reality of God, all we got is sensual appetites, so therefore we replace the reality of an experience with God with sensual stimuli. We've lost God. And what the scripture reveals to us is that the centrality of Christ being worked in us is gonna change us through a process. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You know what the theologians call this? Progressive sanctification. You know what that means? We're being changed from glory unto glory. The NIV there says, from increasing glory. The old version says, glory unto glory. God is changing us. So I know we're not what we should be, but I praise God I'm not what I used to be. I'm moving. I'm in process in a step. I'm going through my 12 months of beauty treatments so that I can be prepared for the king because I believe that he is coming. I believe my life in this whole earth right here is not eternal. 
But if you believe this earth is eternal, you'll make only decisions based upon that. But to enter into by faith is to believe that he is eternal. And one day I'll stand before him. And therefore, all the dynamics I'm going through are there to be transformed. I'm being metamorphized into a new sort of person. So I'm not to be, listen, if I haven't grown for the last year of my Christian faith, I'm either not a Christian, you can call yourself anything you want, you can call yourself a monkey, it won't make you a monkey. I'm either not a Christian or I'm plateaued or I'm backsliding. There's actually no such thing as a plateau Christianity. And so the fact is, is that am I being transformed? Yes, we have unveiled faces. We're looking to him without shame. He's changing us into a new sort of person, and we trust him. And what does that look like? Look what he says in chapter 4. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we don't lose heart. What makes you lose heart? If you haven't been changed. When you're being changed, God takes us through trial upon trial, difficulty upon difficulty, not because he's mean. If he's mean, he could do a lot of stuff to you. If God was mean, he could make you slide down a razor blade into a pool of alcohol. He could, t- that hurt. <laughs> he could turn you inside out. But God is not mean. He's wise. And therefore, he allows these things to transform us so we don't lose heart. Rather, he says in verse 2, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception. Speaking of preachers, we don't use deception nor do we distort the word of God. Is it possible for a preacher to distort the word of God? Yes, in order to draw the disciples after himself. So he's going to be the biggest, the coolest church in town. <laughs> God's working. There's one guy, that he always goes around and he goes, he goes, God's moving here, man. I said, yep, he left a long time ago. <laughs> because if he's really there, if the spirit of Jesus Christ is really there, all glory would go to him. People would be talking about him. And people would be increasingly set apart from their sin. Look what he says. We don't use deception, but some people do is the intonation. We don't distort the word of God, but some people do is the intonation. But on the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, that is, if people don't understand what we're saying, it is veiled to those who are perishing. When someone says, I have no idea what you're talking about. So the answer to the complexity of the gospel is not to dumb it down so people can understand it that aren't regenerate. The answer is to preach it into simplicity, but not so simple that it compromises the truth. Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man cannot understand the things of God. They're spiritually discerned. So that when we, as preachers, take the word of God and so dumb it down so that the unregenerate man can learn it, we do not bring him to Christ because the supernatural will only work where the natural has its reached its upper limit. There's a revelation of the spirit of God to the soul of man and he by faith enters into what he doesn't fully understand but he knows is real and in committing himself to that truth, the truth behaves. There's God. And this behaving truth works itself into the man And so what he says is, listen, there's many people that use deception. And the nature of deception is you think you're doing what's right, but in fact it's wrong. There's many people that lead a life of deception. The nature of deception is you think that what you're believing is true, but it's false. So David said, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. Thy word is a light unto my path. So do we still, in the American church, do we still go back to the Bible or do we go to what works? Because what works will send you to hell. There are doctrines of demons 
Just because it works doesn't mean it's from God. Paul spoke of doctrines of demons. But rather, how do we know if it's really from God? I'll tell you in a minute. What is salvation? I'll tell you in a minute. How do we know what we're hearing is truly the word of God? Well, I'll tell you, one, it won't violate the word of God. And just because I use the word of God doesn't mean that I'm teaching the word. If you're going to distort the word, don't you have to use the word? I mean, which preacher ever believed he is a heretic? All of us think we're teaching the truth. Otherwise, we wouldn't stand here. I suppose some guys are hypocrites and liars, but I don't think most are. What's the standard? Well, I like him a lot. Well, who doesn't? Who cares? Would you have a, would you have a guy that's deceived and you like him a lot and tell you a lie and lead you to hell? Or a guy that you can't stand, but you know he tells you the truth? Amen. I'd rather have someone tell me the truth. Listen, if you jump in this hole, you'll be safe. If you jump in that hole, you'll be in danger. Well, I like you, so I'll jump in that hole. And you go into hell. You jump in the other one, and you say, well, I landed on a pillow cushion. It has nothing to do with a guy. But are there indications within the Scripture? Are there something within the Scripture that we can discern whether or not we are really believing the truth? Is there something in the Scripture that we can discern, have we really understood salvation? I know I'm going to be crazy here. This is going to blow some of your minds. I'll give you the answer, yes. And it's right there for us to see. But because we have so inculcated ourselves with our culture, even though it's right in front of us, that's why I wanted to put the verses on the board, because right in front of us, we can look at it and not see it. Because we have so injected the text with our own preconceptions. Listen, our gospel is only veiled to those people who are perishing. And we're being changed, he says. This is the whole thrust of the gospel. We're being changed. Look at Romans 8, 29. Now, let me ask you a question as they flip it up there. When we talk about salvation, they get into these different Arminianism or Calvinism. I'm not either one. I'm a Calvinistic Arminian. I don't know what I am, but nonetheless, <laughs> both have truth and both have error. Let's put it that way. But when I look at the passage, it, we always lead to be, people to believe that you're predestined to go to heaven or you're predestined to go to hell. The Bible never says that. The Bible only says you've been predestined to something else. Any guesses? What have you been predestined to do? Not to go somewhere. You've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Listen, if your idea of salvation is you go to heaven when you die, oh, we do go to heaven when we die. That's a fringe benefit. But if your idea of salvation is you go to heaven when you die, you have not heard the gospel. You understand this? I'll prove it to you. How many of us would agree that the book of Romans is the greatest doctrine on salvation in the New Testament? A few of you. Uh-oh, we're in trouble here. <laughs> Let me tell you the truth here. Maybe you're too embarrassed to raise your hand. Let me tell you the truth. It is the greatest doctrine on salvation in the entire New Testament. How many times does Romans talk about going to heaven? Not even once. You want to know why? Because salvation is not about going to heaven. If that was the purpose, why am I still here? You're just mean. It's not the purpose. So when it talks about predestination, it only talks about being predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, I've traveled overseas, and many of you have as well. Some of you guys just went back, came back from Moscow, from what I understand. And when you receive a ticket, it says Moscow. You could say you're predestined 
for Moscow. But how do you know that you're predestined? Because you have the ticket? No, because you get on the plane. And every hour that goes by in that particular trip, what is it, like 20 hours, 22 hours? Whew! <laughs> Done it many times. Every single hour that goes by, you get closer to Moscow. That's how I know I've been predestined. But if I say, I've been predestined to go to Moscow, and every hour that goes by, you get closer to France, or you get closer to Belgium, or you get closer to wherever, you would bring rightly into question whether or not you got on the wrong flight, right flight, wouldn't you? You would only assume you got on the right flight if every hour that went by, you got closer and closer and closer to Moscow. But if every hour that went by, you got further and further away from Moscow, you should be concerned. Remember the old days before they had the computer scanners and you get on an airline, I've been, you get on planes, and they'd say, now this, they would always say, now this is a flight that's leaving to Houston, and make sure that you check your ticket, because sometimes the, the ladies at the front wouldn't check it properly. And now they got the red light that goes off, boop, Ooh, you're on the wrong flight, whoa, Nelly, you're at gate B12. <laughs> the only way that I know that I'm actually on the right flight is every hour that goes by, I become more like him. I, I, I see, I've been predestined for a purpose. How do I know I'm part of God's salvation plan? I'm becoming more and more like Jesus. Of course the danger is when we've been walking with the Lord for 30 years that we expect people that have been walking in him for one month to be at our level, of course. But we don't leave them there and we don't go down to their level. We bring them up to ours. He said, you become like me. You follow me as I follow Christ. If I don't follow Christ, don't follow me. But as I follow Christ, you follow me. And so I know that I'm predestined. Now, this is for some of you who are thinking, twang. But have I distorted the scripture in the least? You see how we've put our culture into the Bible? Okay, let's go further. So what is salvation? Whatever it is, part of it is procuring a bride, right? And that bride is going to look like Jesus. Amos 3.3 again, how can two walk together unless they agree? That bride is going to look like her groom, right? Could you imagine... A husband and wife, while they're engaged, before they're married, I can't stand her. She can't stand me. We have nothing in common, but don't worry, we're going to get married. I hate her. It's not going to work. But the two of them have some common like. There's something together in them. They're like each other. And even she'll pretend she likes football, even though she doesn't, but you like football, so I want to be like you. <laughs> See how that works? And the Christian begins to say, Lord, I actually don't like doing these things that you told me, but I'm going to choose to do them because I want to be like you. I want to be with you. And hear this. I was talking with the guys beforehand. I said, you change your mind, God will change your heart. You change your mind, God will change your heart. God, this is wrong what I desire. This is sin that I desire. Lord, I want to be like you. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to confess my sin and, and be, Lord, help me. I want to be like you. Think of it. Put it in the context of a girl pretending she likes football. <laughs> you know what soon enough happens? She begins to like football. Why? Because football is the tool to know her man. <laughs> you see, I just want to be with Jesus. I just want to be like him. And I want to be conformed to his image. I want to be his bride. I want to be, again, First, 2 Corinthians 11 too. And how am I going to walk with him? If I'm going to walk with this Jesus, how am I going to be with him? Look what he says again, that I might present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Friends, how are we to be presented to the Lord Jesus Christ? Wasn't it the adulterous bride 
in Revelation 17 that was the woman that rides the beast, that was not presenting herself as a pure, spotless virgin. She was a whore, a mother of all harlots. John looked at her and said, that's what the church has become. That's not the pure, spotless bride. They believe something that's not true, and they think that because they believe it, that it is true. They think that because the crowd tells them it's true, it becomes true. How many of us know that just because we believe something, it doesn't become true? Remember in the 60s when the kids would take LSD and they'd jump off the buildings, flap their arms? They believed they were birds. Just because they believed they were birds, did they fly? We can believe all sorts of destructive things, but it's not going to become true because you believe it. You see, here's the problem. So they answer then, what is salvation? There's a principle given to us in the scripture, the principle of first mention. And you know what it is? The first time a concept is mentioned in the Bible, the first time is the standing authority on what that principle means, the principle of first mention. Where is the first time in the New Testament that salvation is spoken of? Any books that you would get in the New Testament, not the Old Testament. Any, any guesses in the New Testament that it's spoken of? Which book? Matthew. Any guesses in which chapter? Chapter 1. Look at Matthew chapter 1. Speaking of the time when the angel of the Lord appeared unto Joseph, you son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, he says. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. But then look what he says in verse 21 about this Jesus. And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he that shall save his people from their sins. Again, have we put something into that text that's not there? Does it say, he shall save the people from the consequences of their sins? No. Does it say, he will save them from going to hell? No. Does it say, he will save them to go to heaven? No. The first mention of salvation in the New Testament is this. You shall name him Jesus, for he shall save the people from what? Their sins, so they can become a pure and spotless bride. If we're ever going to be set free, you have to deal with this. If you reject this, you'll never be set free. Because some of you have been trying to live a set free life in your own strength, and you'll stay bound till the day you die. You have to understand something else that is not being taught anymore. So the first mention of salvation is that we shall be like Jesus, and he shall save the people from their sins. The Bible teaches us that sin leads to death. You find that Romans 6, Ezekiel 18, all over the place, actually. Sin leads to death. Did you know that? And if sin leads to death, when God resurrects a body, it'll be a deathless life. And the deathless life will have, be deathless for one reason. There'll be no sin, because sin leads to death. And any doctrine that teaches us to stay in our sin is a false doctrine. And even though the guy's a nice guy, he's a false teacher. Not according to my word. According to scripture. Do you really want to be set free from your sin? Do you guys really, do we really believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? You know what we do? We say, yes, I believe historically he rose from the dead. Good. How many people know that the devil believed that Jesus rose from the dead? 
Okay, how many people know that the devil believes that Jesus died on the cross? Is he saved? No. What does it mean that you believe that he rose from the dead? Well, see, it means that he has power over death. If you read it in the context, he's saying that he has power over sin and death. The sin leads to death. And when Jesus rose again, what you are saying is that I believe that he is greater than my sin. I believe he is greater and has more power than the death that has ensued because of my sin. So when you're confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he rose from the dead, what you're confessing is that there is a power greater than your sin. So how many people are here saying, I can't get out of my sin? You can't. I keep on trying and it's not leaving. That's true. It will never will. I can't. You can't. I agree. But he can. And the issue The only binding issue is will I truly yield myself to him, thus confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, not me. Not a verbal chant. Nanu, nanu. (laughs) But a confession, you are the boss of me. And I believe that you conquered death. And I yield myself to do, to do whatever you want, to present my body as a living sacrifice. God, I believe that you can change me, so God, I yield. This is salvation. Have we contextualized it to our culture? And yet, when I feel the breeze in our culture, we're being defeated by sin. We're not being saved from any sin at all. You see, in the scripture, it speaks about three different movements of God. I don't have time to go through it. I'm gonna briefly do it. If you wanna learn more about this, I have studies on Romans 6 through 8 online. Romans 2013 is the parentheses. And Romans 6 through 8, it will teach you, and I guarantee you, it'll liberate you. The American church has done a fabulous job teaching Romans 1 through 5. Fabulous job. And most expositions of Romans go 1 through 5, and you, man, this is powerful. And then they get to Romans 6 through 8, and the guy goes all topical on you. You ever notice that? They're all topical sermons. You think, well, this chapter 6 doesn't make sense. Chapter 7 really doesn't make sense. And chapter 8 makes total sense in verse 1, but then the rest of it, I don't get it at all. Listen to our Romans 6 through 8 studies if I haven't answered your 20 questions. But you know what? The scripture reveals that there's justification, sanctification, and glorification. In the American church, we've only taught justification. That is not salvation. It is a means to an end. There is sanctification, and that is not salvation. It's a means to an end. There's glorification. That is the end. Justification, past tense, Jesus died on the cross. Sanctification, past tense and present tense. I was sanctified at a moment in time and I'm being sanctified from glory unto glory by the Holy Spirit. Past tense, justification, Jesus. Present tense, the Holy Spirit working in me, sanctified. So that future tense, glorification. We were saved from the penalty of sin, justification, from the power of sin, Sanctification, the power of the Holy Spirit is more powerful than your sin. We're saved from the presence of sin, glorification, the resurrection body. So people say, were you saved? We always speak about, yes, 30 years ago. I said, I was saved, I'm being saved, I will be saved. It's past, present, and future. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but our whole American culture says, nope, justification, that's it. La, 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 la. And you build a doctrine based upon justification. I don't have time to explain this, but you know what the natural conclusion of that is going to be? If your doctrine is only built on justification, it invariably leads to universal salvation. 
It does. Think it through. I don't have time to go into it, but it invariably does. Mark it down. Exclusively teaching justification ultimately leads to a universal salvation. That is all dogs go to heaven. So, there's these movements of God. Let me put it simply. I was teaching, when I was teaching through Romans, I said, God, I have never heard an example. I've never heard people preach on this, Romans 6 through 8. They, they, they teach 1 through 5, awesome. Then they get through 6 through 8, it's terrible. God, I need an example. I'm trying to understand that. I need to relate this to people. God gave me this example. I'm the first. I, I've never heard this from anyone. I don't want glory for it. I want glory unto him because if you'll ask him, he'll tell you. And you know what he said? He said, it's like a glass statue. And the picture he gave me was a glass statue. It's hollow on the inside. It's got, you know, maybe one-inch glass all the way around. It's a glass statue of you. And it's filthy on the inside. It's filthy on the outside. And it's hollow on the inside. That's you before you came to Christ. And when you come to Christ, you know what happens first? He cleans the house so he can live in it. He cleans you by the blood of Jesus Christ. He cleans the inside of the glass, and now, and only now, he'll put the light bulb inside of it because the Holy Spirit won't dwell in a filthy place. He cleans the inside of the statue, puts the light bulb on the inside, and then what does he do? How many of you know that if you clean one side of the window, if the other side's dirty, light still can't get out? The blood of Jesus cleanses you on the inside. Then he imparts his spirit to you on the inside, the light bulb. But guess what? The light still can't get out. So what does he do? He goes to the next step, sanctification. What are you going to do now? Let's start cleaning the statue. 409. And did you know, as soon as you clean the statue, you know what comes out? A light bulb. You know what the word for glory in the scripture is? Light. You want to glorify God? Be sanctified. I'm clean by the blood of Jesus. The light bulb comes in. Now, a beam of light. Another beam of light. Another beam, another beam. And all of a sudden, should we come to a point of perfection that Paul spoke about? Not that I've attained, but I still strive for that perfection. That's my goal nonetheless. I don't say, oh, well, I'm never going to be perfect, so I don't strive for it. You're an idiot. Christ is perfect. You strive for him. Clean the outside of the cup as well, Lord. Scrub it away. And guess what happens? The measure to which he cleans the outside of the cup is the measure to which light comes out. And guess what? Glorification in the scripture is both present tense and future tense. I'm presently glorifying God, beam upon beam, and I will one day fully glorify God where the statue will be completely clean in a resurrection body and the light will go kaboom. Can you imagine that? This is God's goal. And so the Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, a famous verse. All have sinned. Now, I've got seven minutes, so pray for me. <laughs> I decided to go very slow with you because I said this is going to be completely new concepts to most of you. But in Romans 3.23, a famous verse, for all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. What is sin? Falling short of something. What is you falling short of? The glory of God. Shining out God. Can you glorify God by living in sin? No, because God doesn't sin, right? If glory is the representing his nature, and it is, if it's manifesting his person, can you glorify God by living a lifestyle of sin? No. 
And therefore, the measure of our sin is the measure to which we do not glorify God. Why? Because man, Genesis chapter 1, was made to be in the image and the likeness of God. Man was made to glorify God. And when man rebelled against God, he ceased to glorify God. He fell short of the glory of God. Therefore, the gospel is about bringing man back to the condition where he could once again glorify God, not to go to heaven. Have you understood this gospel? The gospel is so bringing man to a place where he could be restored to the original condition. The original condition was Matthew, Genesis chapter 1, where man was made in the image and the likeness of God. When he sinned, he stopped representing God because God doesn't sin. He fell short of the glory of God, and therefore God goes through this whole procuring process to justify a man, to sanctify a man, to glorify a man, so that once again, men could look at us and glorify the Father in heaven. Have you understood this gospel? Look at Matthew chapter 5. Even so, let your light shine before men so that it may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Why would they glorify God if it was you doing it? They only glorify God is because the origin was him. Many people are going to come to the last day and say, Lord, Lord, we did great mighty works in your name. We prophesied in your name. We did great works in your name. Depart from me, your workers of iniquity. I never knew you. What? They did good works. Yep. But the origin of the work was man. It wasn't God. And if the origin is God, the glory will go to God. If the origin is man, the glory will go to man. Look at all the good works we're doing. Fine. But is the origin God? Is it the life of God inside of you shining out, or is it just human effort to pretend there's light? Okay. This is why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ living in me. What's the key of the Christian? I'll tell you the truth. There's nothing good in Ben Ortiz except for Jesus Christ. It, but listen, Ben Ortiz doesn't already died. I died. There came a point in time where I died. It's a painful process. I fought with him for a long time and declared it to be spiritual warfare. You ever do that? I'm going through spiritual warfare and God's saying, I'm trying to put you to death, Ben. Oh, spiritual warfare. Yeah, you're fighting with me. <laughs> I'm going through it <laughs> with me. And I died with Christ. I laid my life down. I tried to lay it down for a long time, and he kept on saying, no, you're pretending. I said, no, I'm not. I'm really. Then why are you so angry that they're treating you like that? I'll tell you why, Ben, because you're not dead. Oh. Well, they're jerks. See, you're proving my point. Here's the issue. The only way you can live is if you die. Seek your life, you'll lose it. Lose your life, you'll find it. The Christian's an enigma. In other words, you have to actually enter in by faith. I'm going to choose to believe you that if I die with you, that you will give me your supernatural power to be another kind of person that I can't be. I can't do this, Lord. I've tried so hard to please you. I've tried so hard to do good, and it's just been wrong. It's hurt people. I have good intentions even at times, and it just doesn't work. God, please help me. And here's the answer. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ living in me. Galatians 4.19. I have to hurry this up. My dear children, for whom I am again in pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, is it a moment experience? Boom, I came to Christ. Boom. Is it a momentarily experience? Yes, it starts with a crisis, but it continues with the process. 
How many of us have faced the crisis? Many have. How many are engaging the process? Many have not. Until, until it's a time word, Christ be formed in you. The picture is Mary impregnated with physically with the Christ. And he grew until he came out. The glory came out. Boop, I see him. Glory, right? The same picture is when we come to Christ. He, spiritually, he's being formed in us until he is seen coming out of us. Have you known this salvation? A new kind of life is living inside of you that's not the old selfish, angry, bitter, contentious, lustful person. You see, I don't believe in sinless perfection of man. But I do believe in sinless perfection of Christ. How many of you believe that Jesus ever sins? I don't believe Jesus sins even once. If Jesus, who never sins, is obeyed and submitted to, he claims to be a power greater than my sin. And as I yield myself to him, he rules over my sin nature, so it's not there. Do you understand this? I got on a plane this last week and visited a family that were sick. And do you realize I engaged by faith a principle called the law of aerodynamics? And I flew but not once did the law of gravity cease to exist. The law of gravity that pulls you to the earth. The law of gravity in you, in me, will always be there pulling you to the earth. But it is a supernatural experience that you engage by a living Christ, not a dead one, by which you override a real power, gravity, by another law, a greater power, the law of aerodynamics. This is Christianity. This is what it means to believe that he rose from the dead. Not to historically assent that somebody died and came out of a grave. Good. But the devils believe that. Jesus never sins. Okay, so let me tell you this. Next slide. If salvation, according to Scripture, not culture, is to save me from my sins, grace is the power to save me from my sins. How many of us understand grace as God winking at sin? If you have a teacher that's teaching you God winks at sin, he is a false teacher, not according to me, according to scripture. I'll show you here just in a second. They gave me a couple more minutes. They literally, they added like three minutes. Don't blame me, I'm just following the rules. How many of you know this kind of grace. Now unto him who is able to what? Keep me from falling. May he present you faultless before the Father. Jude ends this way, does it not? What is grace? I'm on the edge of the cliff and I'm holding on with my fingertips. If I fall and splatter on the ground, the ambulance comes and picks me up. That's called mercy. But you know what grace is? It's unto him who is able to keep me from falling. You know what grace is? He reaches down and grabs my arms and pulls me up. How many of you have known this? There is a power greater than your sin. It is grace. Look what the Bible, not culture. Our culture says, God, you know, grace is there because we're all just sinners. 
I feel like the Grinch right now. You're an idiot. (laughs) What does the Bible say? For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It, the grace of God, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in our present age. What does the grace of God do? It's a power to keep you from falling. Many of you have experienced mercy, but you haven't experienced salvation. You mean I'm not going to heaven? No, salvation has nothing to do with that. Get that out of your mind. If you come to the Lord and say, God, forgive me of my sin, you know what he'll do? He'll say, I'll forgive you. God, please forgive me. You know what he'll say? Okay. God, please forgive me of my sin. Okay. God, would you please forgive me? You know what he'll say? Okay. But it's a different thing to say, Lord, would you save me from my sin? There's a bunch of broken, crippled people at the bottom of the cliff saying, God, please pick me up. He sends the ambulance. He says, okay. God, please pick me up. Okay. But how many people know the salvation of the Lord where you're hanging on the cliff and he says, Lord, I want you to save me from my sins. This is called grace. Now unto him who is able to keep me from falling. Have you understood this? But listen, the false teacher is also there. Look at the next slide. Three minutes. Salvation is always from sin. Number two, grace is the power that God presently gives to give you salvation from your sin. Number three, the false teacher says that grace is there in order to continue in sin. The false teacher uses the God words, salvation, grace, mercy, love. He uses the God words, but he has a different meaning. Even he himself is deceived. Prove it then, gladly, Jude. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men. Watch this. Who are these godless men that are teachers in our church? They change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our Lord, our sovereign and our Lord. You know what that means? Do they deny Jesus Christ, saying, Jesus doesn't exist? No. They deny who he is, the sovereign and the Lord. They deny his authority in our life. I do what I'm going to want to do, and I'll say it's God telling me to do it. No, you're denying the Lord, his authority. Who are these false teachers in the church? He says, they not only deny the Lord, but they take God's grace and say, God's grace is there to teach you to sin. What did Titus say? The grace of God is to teach you how to say no to sin. Have you experienced God's grace? Or just his mercy? Are you being procured through those 12 months of treatments like Esther to be a beautiful bride for your king? Where you're basked in the oil of the Holy Spirit, you're taking on the fragrance, the fragrance of Christ, to walk with him, to commune with him, to be conformed to the image of Christ. I've been predestined for this, so I engage it, I work out my salvation, so that as I engage what he has given me, it becomes reality. Commit yourself to the truth, and the truth behaves. Have we understood this? Now, there's too many other verses because I have 45 seconds, but let me look at this. 2 Corinthians 11. Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then that if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, what does Satan do? His preachers pretend to be ones who tell you how you can be right with God, righteousness. This is how you can be right with God. His grace is so powerful, you can live in sin. You're believing a doctrine of a devil. 
because his grace teaches us how to deny ungodliness and actually becomes our pleasure to please him. Okay, next verse. Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Are you? I'm not. Is the gospel, live in sin, go to heaven? No, that's not the gospel. Because it's the power of God for the salvation. Ah, going to heaven. No, it doesn't say that. Salvation from sin for everyone who believes. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Where? In you, in me. In the gospel, what was missing is restored. We lost the image and the likeness of God, the righteousness, the moral character of God when we fell. It's being restored through the gospel. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Okay, keep going. One more verse. Romans 6. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, therefore, count yourself, count yourself, consider it, reckon it, have this attitude in your mind. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Because Jesus did what he did and you died in him, you also live in him, so act upon the life that he has given you. That's all he's saying. Go in by faith, but I feel it really bad. Who doesn't? But as the old hymn says, temptations lose their power. And I commit myself to the truth, and the truth behaves. I yield myself to God, and God lives his life. And I go, I can't believe I almost tripped up on that stupid sin. God, you are saving me. You're not just forgiving me. You're saving me. You're giving me a power, and I'm walking with you. I feel like I've had a bath treatment. I feel pleasant. I feel presentable to you. I'm in love with you. Oh, is this, could this be what God's after? And then here, you want to know what the new covenant is? Here it is, Romans 6, 14. This is the new covenant. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Does that verse now, for the first time in your life, make sense? Sin will not be your master. Why? Because I have another master. Who? The Lord Jesus Christ. And I yield myself to him. The false teacher denies him. Not denying his existence, denying his authority in his life. I do what I want to do when I want to do it. No, the true teacher says, follow Christ. And as I follow him, I depend upon his grace to be another kind of person that I can't be by myself. This is the gospel, and I'm not ashamed of that gospel, not the phony gospel, the humanistic gospel. I'm ashamed of that one. But the true gospel? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Isn't that good news? And if you think it's dependent upon you, you can't, but you have to be a willing participant. Let him. Submit. Obey him. Take radical action. Throw your computer away, whatever. I'll lose my job. Lose your job, who cares? <laughs> Cut off your right hand, pluck out your eye. You know, whatever, just get rid of it. Present yourself to him. And no, God is a debtor to no man. He's a debtor to no man. You can't outgive God. Amen. Lord, I pray that these would understand. Let them walk in your truth. Let them be set free. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.